be afraid of Lobo. He's as gentle as a kitten. Say, you know what time it is? Uh, really, because I'm not quite sure what time it is. I can't see my clock because the microphone's in the way. Oh, actually, I can just... Oh, there, there's the time. Um, oh, anyway, it's also time for episode 32 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And I'm your host, Sean, or Janitor Sean, whatever you want to call me. Dauber on Atari Age and other video game forums. And I'm back with a episode talking about Thomas Mathis's Robot Finds Kitten. And uh, we'll get to that in a little bit later. And of course, because this is the beginning of the episode, I have to just kind of ramble on, you know, just uh, horse around for a little bit uh, because nobody ever says, hi, it's the podcast. Now here's the game. So anyway, I hope everybody's been doing okay. I've, I don't know how I've been doing really. Um, I'm a little bit poorer now because my wife and I just bought a new car, (laughs) um, One of the nice things, though, is that living in the city of Chicago, there's plenty of mass transit around here, and it's an easily bikeable city, so we don't need a car for everything. So when we moved here, my wife and I both traded in our cars, and we got basically just one vehicle for the two of us. So that saves on a lot of hassle, especially trying to park the thing, because we have have a one-car garage, and parking in the city can be... A little bit rough. We didn't always have a garage space. I'd have to go out and find a place to park somewhere in the neighborhood. And oh man, I got to tell you about this. Sometimes what'll happen is just out of nowhere, where your car is parked, the city decides they need to do some repairs or construction or something, which means that they have to move your car. And that happened to me once. They actually towed my car and put it somewhere else. And what you're supposed to do is call 311. And say, hey, you know what? I think my car was uh, was towed somewhere, and I want to find out where it is so I can go get it. And you give them your license plate, and they'll say, okay, yeah, here's where we moved it. Thing is, when I called, they hadn't updated the database yet. They said, call back in half an hour, and we should be able to tell you exactly where your car is. So I did. I called back half an hour later, and they said, yeah, we don't see your car here. So I... So I, I don't know what happened, but I was pretty sure it wasn't stolen because there were suddenly new construction signs where there weren't construction signs before. I had to spend like 20 minutes walking up and down streets in the neighborhood until I I finally did find my car. I wasn't fined or anything because it wasn't my fault. They never announced any construction or anything. But uh, so, yeah, that was before we got our garage space. So um, anyway, we had a 2007 Saturn view. It worked fine. It had never gave us any problems other than normal expected wear and tear. But my wife was saying how, well, it's 11 years old and it's got over 100,000 miles on it. There's going to come a time soon when it's not going to be okay. So let's do something while we can still get somewhat of a trade-in for it. And the thing is, like buying a Saturn, we had been a Saturn family since 2001. And buying a Saturn was... Seriously, in terms of buying a car, pretty hassle-free. There was no haggling. They said, here's the price of the car. Here's what it is if you want these features. Here's what it is if you don't want these features. Here's what we're giving you for our trade-in, and here's why we're giving you this for the trade-in. It's because of this, 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 and this. Take it or leave it. There's no haggling. And uh, it's actually pretty easy to do. But, of course, with the 
automobile industry bailout of 2008, General Motors had to purge some of its brands, and Saturn, sadly, was one of them, which meant that it was back to the old-fashioned kind of haggling. And the thing is, my wife and I usually buy our cars new. She actually convinced me a long time ago that a new car was, it was much better to get a new car for various reasons. For one thing, it's fresh out of the plant. You know it hasn't been abused by someone you've never met before. Uh, when, when you buy a used car, there's a reason it's used, and God knows what that reason is. And I remember my first car, my first car was a, was a used car, and after the dealer did all the cleaning and stuff and sold it to me, uh, I was driving it home. My dad was in the passenger seat, and he flipped open the ashtray. He said, hey, guess what? They forgot to empty the ashtray. <laughs> and that kind of thing disgusts me. I can't stand any any kind of tobacco so I had to hold my nose and grab like a paper towel and pull that thing out and just throw it in the garbage. And uh, in 2004, actually, I actually did get uh, a used Saturn. And this is after I had already gotten a new Saturn before I traded it in, got a used one. And um, I then remembered, oh, yeah, this is exactly why we like new cars. Because I eventually I figured, okay, yeah, here's why somebody returned it. Here's what was wrong with it. And it's like, oh, God. So we got a Jeep Cherokee. So my wife and I like crossovers. Well, I think my wife is more insistent on crossovers basically because all the crap she has to drive around with. uh, If you're not a teacher or married to a teacher, let me tell you, teachers carry a lot of stuff with them. And uh, that's one reason why my wife doesn't take mass transit to work because she, she has so much stuff she needs to take with her on a daily basis. It just wouldn't work on mass transit. She'd have to carry like eight bags with her practically. Not a good thing. And also, I am a tall guy, and I have a hard time fitting in a lot of cars. So I almost need some kind of crossover to be able to fit in there. So we, the reason we got the Jeep Cherokee is because we were in Portland a few years ago, and we and the, the rental place set us up with a Grand Cherokee. We loved it. And my wife knows so many people who have various Jeep models, and they all absolutely love them. Well, we got this Cherokee, and we're loving the thing. It's really nice. It's got all kinds of bells and whistles, because what we wanted, we had specifically wanted one that didn't have all the bells and whistles. Like We didn't need the 5-inch computer screen inside. We don't need the electric seats and all that garbage. We just need something simple, something simple. And uh, this is probably some kind of sales ploy, but uh, they check the database. They're like, yeah, we're not seeing that we have one of those. Uh, Let's let me go out and check. And the guy spent some time literally looking at every single car to see if any of them met our standards. And he's like, yeah, we don't have any in stock, but uh, we can sell you this one that has all the extra garbage you don't want at the price of the one that doesn't have all the extra garbage. And so there was that. We got all sorts of rebates on it. We were able to kind of get them to up their trade-in price a little bit. And we actually got a really good deal. And monthly payments we're paying on that thing are actually a little bit less than what we were paying on our Saturn View, which had almost no frills whatsoever. <laughs> but, um, hey, I'm, I'm happy with it. And uh it almost makes me sad that I have to take mass transit to work or take my bike or something. I want to drive the thing. <laughs> In um, other personal stuff, I guess. Uh, I might have mentioned this before. I don't remember, but 
I sort of got hooked on Stranger Things, and I just finished the second season, and I'm going through Stranger Things withdrawal now, so uh, I don't know what to do about that. Uh, I, I'm not looking for suggestions of other shows. Uh, the reason that I watched Stranger Things was because everybody was talking about it. The title itself kind of enthralled me. So I was like, let me check this thing out. If you had told me what Stranger Things was about before I watched it, I probably would have said, yeah, I'm going to pass. But I watched the first episode. I was like, yeah, this is nothing I would ever watch. But it kind of sucked me in. I wanted to see what happens next, what happens next. And kind of bringing this to the topic of this podcast, almost, there is a 2600 homebrew in the works called Stranger Things. I think it's subtitled Barb's Revenge. Uh, If you're planning to watch the show and haven't yet, I'm not going to say anything further. So no spoilers here. Because the just the possible topic of the game could spoil the show. So maybe what I'll do is instead of watching uh, Stranger Things now, since I'm done with it, until, oh man, the next season isn't going to be out until either the end of this year or early next year. Ah! Well, hey, I survived that big, huge, what, what was it, 18 months that Mad Men wasn't on? I'll survive this. So uh, Maybe I can fill that gap with some homebrew plays or something. We'll see. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, so that's my life. And, uh, anyway, um, one thing I do want to talk about though, that's actually somewhat on topic last episode. I had, I had read some feedback. I talked about an email that I got about a couple of new Pac-Man style games for the 7,800. They were homebrews and they were called junior Pac-Man 2600 and Slimer two. And I didn't quite know what they were. I hadn't had a chance to try them out. Well, I had a chance to try them out now. Junior Pac-Man 2600, what that is, it's a hack of Bob DiCrescenzo's Junior Pac-Man game, except that the maze, the maze that you use is actually laid out in the style of the Atari 2600 Pac-Man maze. It's the color scheme of the arcade Pac-Man, but the walls and tunnels are modeled after the 2600 version of Pac-Man, and it's really fascinating to play that. It's just a graphical hack, really. It plays the same as any other Junior Pac-Man. Well, actually, there is a little bit more gameplay elements. They make it kind of a plus version of the game. And, of course, Slimer 2 was the other one. And that seemed to be basically a Junior Pac-Man plus, if you will. That is, it plays like Pac-Man plus, but it's Junior Pac-Man. But the Pac-Man sprite and the monster sprites were changed to resemble Ghostbusters characters. Like, I think the... Pac-Man monsters became uh, ghosts from Ghostbusters. And I think your character is a Ghostbuster. So that's basically what that's all about. And other than that, I don't think there's anything new, at least in the 7800 Homebrew Horizon. And in my notes, I have a bullet point that says MGC. Uh, That simply means Midwest Gaming Classic. I guess I should mention that I will be there at the Pie Factory podcast table, most likely going to be in a podcast room. And I'll have my 7800 there, and if you want to try out some homebrews or I guess anything else, really, I'll have my Mateos cart and Harmony cart with me as well. <laughs> Swing by our table, and if you just want to say hi or or whatever reason you have, just check us out. I don't know where we'll be yet. We still haven't discussed the logistics yet with uh, Dan Lucen, who's in charge of the uh, the show. In fact, I'm probably going to send him an email today and say, hey, is there anything we need to know yet? Uh, but that's going to be in downtown Milwaukee. I'll put a I'll put a link to Midwest Gaming Classics website in 
the show notes. But in the meantime, I'm introducing kind of a new feature in this podcast, and that's what I'm going to call the Abandoned Homebrew. So let's check out an Abandoned Homebrew. Given what's already been covered in this podcast, the pickings for complete homebrews are getting pretty slim. So for episode 32, I'm introducing a new feature, talking about abandoned homebrews. Um, homebrew vaporware, if you will. And these are projects that have been started, sometimes yielding playable games, but never seem to come to completion. The first abandoned homebrew that I want to talk about is called Block Drop, which sadly never will be completed, at least not by its original author. Block Drop was developed by Ken Siders, who sadly died in the summer of 2017. Ken was one of those homebrewers who would go to great lengths to make his games as close as humanly possible to their arcade originals. He did a wonderful job with both Beef Drop and Bonk, and Block Drop spelled uh, B-L-O-C-D-R-O-P, all one word, Block Drop was no exception. Block Drop was essentially going to be an Atari 7800 conversion of the arcade version of Tetris, and a little bit more. And as far as I know, that would have been the only real home conversion of the arcade version of Tetris. The only other home version of Tetris that I'm aware of that came close was the Tengen version of Tetris for the NES, but it was still missing some elements of the arcade version. I'm not going to get into the background and history of Tetris, as uh, that's not the focus of this episode, but I do encourage you to go to YouTube and watch the hour-long documentary called The Story of Tetris on Gaming Historian's channel, and I'll link that in the show notes. The first inkling of Block Drop was posted to Atari Age on November 6, 2012 in a vaguely titled thread called simply WIP, W-I-P, lowercase letters. The game binary that was attached to the initial message even had a vaguer file name, game.zip. In keeping up the motif of vagueness, Atari Age user Hammer25 answered Atari Brian's question of what is it? by saying, it's a gravity-based puzzle game using geometric shapes. Ken wanted to include music from the arcade Tetris, although he wasn't sure how good it would have sounded using the 7800's internal TIA chip. Also, he wasn't really a music programmer, so he wasn't sure how he was going to do it. The XM unit's onboard Pokey or Yamaha chip would be a possibility. Ken also hinted that if there were enough space, he'd consider using music from other versions of Tetris as well, and even make the musical pieces player-selectable. Music or not, pokey or not, Ken planned to at least have sound effects in the game. In terms of gameplay, the plan was to include a mode in which you clear a certain number of lines, then advance to the next level, as in the arcade version. Ken was also planning a mode in which you just keep playing. No level advancement or screen clearing or anything like that. You just keep on lining up blocks. In terms of appearance, Ken was considering different color options for the falling blocks or offering the blocks to be designed with either solid colors or outlines. And as with the arcade and other versions of Tetris, Ken planned to have a two players at once option for block drop. He wanted to have support for both one and two button controllers, with two button controllers opening the possibility for rotating the falling blocks clockwise and counterclockwise. He also planned to implement hard drops and soft drops. Uh, I'm, I don't, I'm not exactly 100% sure what he meant by this, but I'm guessing that what he meant 
was for hard drops, meaning that if you pull down on the joystick, the block goes all the way as far down to the bottom as it can. While if it's a soft drop, it means that when you pull down on the joystick, it simply goes down one more space, which I believe is how the arcade version works. And I know it's how the Game Boy version works. Ken did warn, however, that adding the intermissions from the arcade game would be difficult due to all the resources the game was already using. He figured at the very least, he'd need to make the playfields black and white during the intermissions. Uh, the intermissions, I believe he means uh, when you, in between levels, when there'd be uh, like a guy in the middle of the screen doing a dance. On March 6, 2013, Ken posted a revised version of the game, making some tweaks to the rotation of the pieces and moving the pieces left and right. He disclaimed, however, that he was only able to test the game so far on an emulator and not real 7800 hardware. On March 10th, Ken posted a version of the game with newly added sound effects. And uh, that, well, that was the last thing we heard about Block Drop, at least from Ken himself, although he was still very active on Atari Age and working on other projects at that time and right up until his death a few years later. I believe one theory as to why Block Drop was never finished is that the development was held up by delays in getting the XM unit in working order. Despite the halt in development, Ken did leave a very playable ROM that closely resembles the arcade version of Tetris. It's clear that Ken was getting ready to implement the complete so many number of lines advance the level method, um, because when you're playing the game, there's a countdown of how many lines you have left. The countdown is there, but when it reaches zero, the gameplay just keeps going on. The board doesn't freeze and reset and give you an an, uh, animation or tell you that it's the next level or anything. You just keep playing. It's pretty much just a basic game of Tetris. And the scoring in Block Drop follows the same scoring pattern that the arcade version does. If you have an emulator set up or a rewritable cartridge for your 7800, check it out. I'll put a link to the... Uh, most recent ROM in the show notes. Even though Ken isn't here to finish the game, I am holding on to hope that someone else might be able to pick it up and complete it. So that's Block Drop, so let's move on to this episode's featured homebrew, Robot Finds Kitten. A long-time listener of this podcast reminded me that the name of this podcast isn't the Atari 7800 Homebrew Games podcast. And um, in fact, I even went so far as to imply that, if not outright state that, in the introductory episode, I do plan to talk about homebrew hardware from time to time. But this time, I'm talking again about software, particularly Robot Finds Kitten. But... Going back to that listener's comment about homebrew games, um, is it really a game? Robot Finds Kitten is described by the author as a zen simulation. Leonard Richardson first developed Robot Finds Kitten for MS-DOS, remember that? Back in 1997. In fact, if you go to the official Robot Finds Kitten homepage, which I'll put a link in the show notes, of course, you'll see the tagline, Finding Kitten Since 1997. The game, or Zen exercise, whatever you want to call it, uh, by the way, it's spelled 
all in lowercase letters and robot finds kitten is one word, but it consists of a black playfield, and there are various random ASCII characters scattered all over the playfield. Your character is a robot, depicted as a hash, number sign, pound sign, tic-tac-toe board, whatever your culture and generation chooses to call that symbol you get when you type shift three on a standard QWERTY keyboard. Your job as robot is um, to find kitten. You move around the playfield using the arrow keys in your keyboard. When you reach one of the random characters, you have to move into the character, right up against that character, and then move one more space into it, and you'll get a message above the playfield telling you what you have found, if you found anything, that is. For example, you might see a message that says, Paul Moyer's necktie, or just a man selling an albatross. Sometimes you may see a message that almost seems like a fortune cookie, such as, you feel strangely unfulfilled, or perhaps, an aromatherapy candle burns with healing light. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of possible messages, all of which simply means that, well, Robot did indeed not find Kitten. The characters on the screen that give you those messages are called non-Kitten items, or NKIs. And apparently there exists a version of Robot Finds Kitten in which you have a 1 in 10 chance of Robot being killed by an NKI. A spoiler alert, not the 7800 version. But should Robot find Kitten, the message will read, You found Kitten! Way to go, Robot! The message area would also include an animation of your pound sign robot character and whatever random character ended up being Kitten moving toward each other. Robot Finds Kitten has been ported to many, many systems and languages. Platforms that have Robot Finds Kitten include Linux, Android, Sega Master System and Dreamcast, Atari 2600 and of course 7800, Amiga, PlayStation Portable, Game Boy Advance, Commodore 64, Apple II, Palm devices, and even Texas Instruments calculators, just to name a few. Programming languages that have Robot Finds Kitten source code include Java, Python, and web languages such as HTML5, PHP, JavaScript, and Web 2.0. There are even versions of Robot Finds Kitten for Zune and the Rockbox Music Player operating systems. As for the Atari 7800 version, well, that was programmed by an Atari Age user named Tom. He's based over in Switzerland. He coded the game, the Zen simulation, whatever that thing is, using the CC65 compiler, which means that this actually predates the Wasp homebrew as one of the first 7800 games programmed in C. Tom first posted a preview of the port on March 20th, 2004, making Robot Finds Kitten possibly the earliest Atari 7800 homebrew yet, aside, of course, from Harry Dodgson's monitor cartridge. His post included just the NTSC version, with the PAL version scheduled for later. Tom had asked if there was a way of testing the game on an actual 7800 system, because he was only able to test it in an emulator. Atari Age user Mitch tried it on a 7800, but found that moving the joystick up did nothing, whether it be in the opening select menu or in the game. And uh, that bug took well over a year to get fixed. And you're probably thinking, wait, why did it take such a long time to fix what sounds like a minor bug? Well, keep in mind, this started in 2004. Back then, there weren't many Atari 7800 homebrewers out there yet. That's why there was the Homebrewer Palooza contest, to encourage people to learn how to homebrew. So basically, Tom didn't have a lot of help. 
There weren't many people out there who knew what they were doing to help him. But Mitch, whom I just mentioned a minute ago, stepped in and helped out, and then there was a bug-fixed version posted on Atari Age on June 22, 2005. Robot Finds Kitten was entered into the Homebrewer Palooza contest that I talked about just now, and in episode 7 of this podcast covering Combat 1990, and, uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to be talking about it again in the upcoming Pac-Man Collection Gigasode. I don't believe Robot Finds Kitten was ever put on a cartridge, and in my opinion, I don't, I don't think it's worth putting on a cartridge, given the nature of the game, I guess. If you want to play it, you'll have to download the ROM and play it in an emulator or on one of several Atari 7800 rewritable cartridges that have uh, come about over the years, such as the Cuddle Cart 2, Crocodile Cart, or the Mateos 16-in-1 cartridge. But what happens when you do play Robot Finds Kitten on the 7800? First of all, you get a selection screen that has a robot and a kitten drawn in gray ASCII characters with a red heart between them composed of periods, semicolons, and colons, all to resemble the style of the original version. The title Robot Finds Kitten 7800 appears in the middle, and below that are three options all in blue text. Find Kitten, lowercase letters, exclamation point, instructions, and about. And I'll go through each one of those just to give you an idea what's going on there. If you choose the About option, you get a screen that's essentially credits. You get uh, Leonard Robinson named on the screen, the original Robot Finds Kitten author, and Tom's full name, which I believe is Thomas Mathis. Uh, then again, he's Swiss, so I'm sure the TH isn't pronounced like a TH. It's probably Mat- Matisse or something. But anyway, there's a link to not only the Robot Finds Kitten homepage, but also Tom's own site, which is now defunct. One additional thing on the screen is the phrasing written originally for the Nerf Pork Robot Finds Kitten Contest. I realize I haven't mentioned Nerf Pork yet. So what is Nerf Pork? It was a webzine that ran a Robot Finds Kitten Contest in 1997 in which entrants were asked to come up with some kind of interpretation of the word, the phrase, whatever, Robot Finds Kitten and Leonard Richardson's game was the only submission. But anyway, the bottom of the About screen tells you to press the Fire button to continue. The Instructions option on the menu does just that. It gives you the instructions. And I gotta read you the instructions, because I find them amusing, the way that they're phrased. Uh, This isn't a uh, language barrier, the way it's written, because it's always been written like this in the instructions, going back to 1997. The instructions read, In this game, you are robot. Your job is to find Kitten. The task is complicated by the existence of various things which are not Kitten. Robot must touch items to determine if they are Kitten or not. And of course, again, you are told to press Fire to continue. And if you want to play the game, you have to move the arrow to the Find Kitten option and hit the Fire button. Actually, you might not need to move at all because it's the first option. But regardless, it's the game. You play the game. It doesn't appear to be that the items on the screen are specifically necessarily ASCII characters. And the reason I say that is because there are some characters on the screen that are not part of the ASCII character set. They're a little bit more on the graphical side. Uh, It almost looks like they're used to draw tables or something. Kind of like those weird characters on a Commodore 64. But uh, I'm guessing that those might be part of the Atari 7800 character set. But regardless, the gameplay is the same. You control a gray hash mark, 
you move one space at a time in four different directions using the joystick, and you have to figure out which one of those characters is Kitten. When you do find Kitten, a new screen appears and it animates your hash character and the character that ends up being Kitten. They move toward each other in the middle of the screen, while two red hearts flash above them. And you get the expected, you found kitten, way to go robot message, with a prompt telling you, of course, to press the fire button to continue. So that's Robot Finds Kitten for the 7800, and I gotta say, covering this title in this episode is making me think I need to surrender my nerd card. I've never heard of Robot Finds Kitten until I started doing this podcast. Yet, um, judging from messages on Atari Age and other places online, there are so many people out there who know about Robot Finds Kitten and have played it. So how did it elude me? (sighs) Oh, well, you know what? I'm not going to worry about that for now. So uh, let's just get to some feedback. Kittens tick the giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. For this episode, we're going to go to Atari Age first for feedback, and I heard from Toilet Tunes, who says about Robot Finds Kitten, unlike anything else on the 7800. The first round is fun, but once you've seen all the messages, there's little incentive to play. And thank you, Toilet Tunes. And that's exactly why I say it's not really worth putting this on a permanent cartridge. It's really not. It's more of a novelty. You'll get a few laughs out of it, and you'll be like, yeah, okay, I get the point. The incentive to play, though, I the only thing I can think of is maybe competition, like see who can find Kitten in the fewest turns. Uh, I actually just recently found Kitten with just the first attempt. My lowest before that was six, and I thought that was pretty impressive. But the thing is, there's no strategy. It's all just random. And moving on to Sean on Atari Age, S-H-A-W-N, not me, but someone who spells it wrong. Uh, Robot Finds Kitten is relaxing by nature. You would almost think it was a Zen simulator, smiley face. Uh, Yeah, I think that's the point, Sean. Uh, Relaxing by, you know what? It really is relaxing by, and I can totally see it being a Zen simulator, which is how it's actually promoted, by the way, because it really kind of clears your head. It It seriously does. It does. Going on, uh, Slidell Man. Slidell Man. I don't know how Slidell is pronounced. Uh, it's a town in Louisiana. I don't know how to say it, unfortunately. But uh, Slidell Man, Slidell Man says, uh, and he was actually commenting both on Robot Finds Kitten and the previous episode's title, which was Wasp, saying, it appears that both games could have used more in terms of replay value. Still solidly made, though. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, uh, going back to Wasp, I do believe that Groovy B himself was kind of doubting the replay value because, yeah, there, doesn't, there isn't any increasing difficulty in that, and uh, he wanted to put in a feature to refuel your energy. But uh, going on to Gambler172, that's Walter in Germany, who says, Robot Finds Kitten is a nice little demo on the 7800. For a game, something is missing. Not a top title, but good enough to play. Thank you there, Walter. In other feedback, I have an email here from Eugenio who says, Hello, Sean. Well, hello back at you. I hope you're having a fantastic day. I finished listening to your episode for Wasp, and I heard you mention a couple of things that I figured I'd comment on before I start talking about the game for this episode. You said on the survey people stated that a 30-minute podcast is what they find as the sweet spot. I wouldn't change the format for this podcast based on that, particularly if you know the longest episode yet 
is the upcoming one looking at Pac-Man collection, unless you want to split it only because of your logistics, I'd keep it as one long episode. I mean, look at the Intellivision Aries. Their most recent episode was some seven hours long. And you mentioned the Cuddle Cart too. I have one of those and it is a great multi-cart to have. You thought it only held one game at a time, but it actually uses an SD card to hold the games, so you can add quite the library of games to it. And that brings me to the last thing you mentioned. You're running out of games to cover. Well, homebrews are more than just games. There's also homebrew hardware. What if you also discuss some of that homebrew hardware designed for the 7800? The Cuddle Cart 2, the Mateos Cart, etc.? That stuff is also homebrew, and your title for the podcast isn't Atari 7800 Homebrew Games Podcast. Maybe some food for thought. Anyhow, how about I tell you about a certain robot that is looking for a kitten? So, Robot Finds Kitten is a rather unique title for the 7800 that I was not aware of until recently. The game was originally written for DOS by Leonard Richardson, and it uses an ASCII interface where the player controls the titular robot who is represented by a number sign while it looks for the kitten, which is represented by some random letter, symbol, or sign. What makes the kitten so hard to find? Well, that the playing field is full of many such random letters, symbols, or signs. As the robot walks to each one of these, you are told what they are, or you are given some fun text to read. If the character you walk up to is the kitten, you are given a happy message that you found the kitten, and the game ends. The game was ported to the 7800 by Thomas Mathis for the 2004-2005 Homebrewer Palooza contest, and it is pretty much the exact same game. There's a nice title screen drawn using ASCII characters, which has a heart, the cat, the robot, and a menu for selecting to start the game, read instructions, or get information about the game. The game screen renders all the characters in various colors, and it gives you the message or detail or information for characters you walk up to at the top of the screen. When you find the kitten, the screen changes to a short animation of the robot and the kitten meeting in the middle of the screen with the message you found kitten, way to go robot, and two flashing hearts. Uh, Eugenio and I are very much on the same page, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, Anyway, you can then start to play the game again. There isn't much to this game, but it is fun to walk around to just read the curious messages that are assigned to the different characters that are on the screen. There are no sound effects to talk about, by the way. So a simple game to play for a few minutes, but still a nifty concept. Until next time, Eugenio. And Eugenio, thank you so much for your thoughtful feedback as usual. And yeah, this is exactly the email I was referring to before when I said there is a frequent listener who said this is not just the Homebrew Games podcast. And that is so true. I would love to talk about the Cuddle Cart 2 and the Crocodile Cart. The only thing is those things are not really available. Uh, They're long out of production, and I don't really know if there's much to talk about. Crocodile Cart, that's actually what I was thinking about when I talked about the Cuddle Cart 2 and thought that it was just one game at a time. It was the Crocodile Cart that's just one game at a time. And the thing is, there's not really much to say. The Crocodile Cart has a serial port on it. You connect your computer to the Crocodile Cart via serial cable, and you drop a ROM into it, drag and drop. There, done. Cuddle Cart 2, You load up the ROMs on an SD card, stick the SD card in, fire it up, boom. Same with the Concerto cartridge, which is not technically in production yet, although a few test versions have been released. Uh, Just load up the games on an SD card. Mateo's cart, it's a 16-in-1 flash device, and you connect the burner to a computer with a USB cable. You copy the ROMs over to the burner because it's mounted as a drive. 
And there you have it. I mean, I absolutely do want to address the hardware. I've, I mentioned that on episode zero. Oh my God. Especially when the XM unit is finally released. I love that Kurt is constantly posting updates um, as to the progress of that thing. That's going to be one beautiful little device. As for Pac-Man collection, um, it's, it's not so much that 30 minutes was the sweet spot when I took the survey. It was 30 to 60, so basically up to an hour. The thing is, though, I was told by a few people that certain podcast apps and streaming services have a little bit of trouble when an episode goes over two hours. It just can't physically handle it. So I'm thinking more than likely I will be splitting the Pac-Man collection gigasode into multiple parts, hopefully just two. And uh, that'll actually make things easier on me too. So uh, that's how that's going to handle up there. And um, I really don't think I have anything more to say about Robot Finds Kitten. I'm not ignoring that part of Eugenio's feedback. I just have nothing more to add. I think we've said everything that really needs to be said about it. One thing I do have to say though is what constantly went through my mind as I was playing Robot Finds Kitten and doing the research for this episode is Robot Finds Kitten would be a great programming exercise for somebody learning any particular language at all. Because there's so much to it in such a simple little program. There's you've got joystick control, keyboard control, however you want to do it, randomization, collision detection, a data file, because I do believe most versions of Robot Finds Kitten use a separate data file that's just raw text that has all the random messages in it. So it's really a great exercise in programming. I just might have to do a version of it myself. The only thing is I think every language I could possibly do it in already has a Robot Finds Kitten. Although I do want to learn TypeScript. So maybe that could be something. Oh, well. But anyway, thanks again, Eugenio, and everybody who sent a feedback. Thank you so much for your contributions. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed this exploration of Robot Finds Kitten. I, however, do not have a kitten-finding robot, uh, mainly because I'm allergic to cats, so that would not uh, be a good idea. Before I move any further, though, I have some people that I really absolutely want to thank and will thank right now. Thank you to Ed Ladden Controllers. Thank you to Kyle Etter. Thank you to Jimmy G. Thank you to Great Defender. Thank you to Richard Grounds. Um, especially for the shoe buying advice, by the way. Um, and thanks to Paul Steele. Paul Steele is the latest addition to this list of people I'm thanking. He sent out a really nice tweet involving both this podcast and Pie Factory podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. And thank you also to Richard Valdez. Why am I thanking these people? I am thanking them because they were generous enough to help support this podcast financially via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash homebrew78. And if you're not familiar with Patreon, it is a way you can donate to creative projects by subscribing, basically, for as little as a dollar a month. And uh, any little bit helps. Uh, I might have mentioned before that thanks to some Patreon subscribers, I was able to uh, kind of upgrade my recording gear a little bit. So uh, that's really, really great. But anyway, if you wish to reach out to me via email, my address is homebrew78 at fab4it.com. 
And fab4it.com is spelled F-A-B and then the number four and then it.com, fab4it.com. You can check this podcast out on Twitter at homebrew78 and the YouTube channel is homebrew7800. And the show notes that I keep mentioning every episode, you can view the show notes on the web at homebrew78.fab4it.com. Coming up next, well, I'm trying to figure out how exactly to say this. Uh, I'm finding lately that I'm getting a little bit burned out um, on podcasting, at least doing the same thing every episode. Um, Having said that, I'm not taking a break. I'm not going on hiatus or anything. There will be another episode in two weeks. However, um, here's the thing. In fact, it Jimmy G and I, as you probably know, host Pie Factory podcast, and we both had a realization that we were kind of getting burnt out. And uh, we took a month off, but we were still kind of like, yeah, it's, there's just still something just not quite right. We're still not fully recuperated. So we asked some friends who are also podcasters. We asked, uh, "What do you guys do to keep it up? How do you, how do you keep going? How do you avoid burnout?" And that we got some really helpful advice. And something that I want to try, uh, this is not going to be necessarily a regular thing, but I'm going to follow Ferg's model a little bit. I mention Ferg all the time on this podcast, and if you don't listen to his podcast, you are doing yourself a tragic disservice. He hosts the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, which is an amazingly informational and entertaining podcast. He hosts Please Stand By with Kevin Zerb, which I've mentioned before is just a freaking hysterical listen. He also co-hosts Intari Visions, and I'm sure I'm leaving a few out, but uh, something that Ferg does once in a while just to kind of keep himself from really burning out is he has a special edition of the Atari 2600 game-by-game podcast called, I think he calls it Bonus Tracks, is it? Well, I'm going to do something similar for the next episode. I'm going to do go completely off-topic and also kind of following, uh, I think, Ferg's most recent foray into off-topicness. I'm going to talk about what I do for a living because I like talking about myself. Let's just uh, deal with that for now. And after that, we'll be back with episode 33. We'll, we'll be back? Just me, jeez. And uh, I haven't figured out what I'm going to do for episode 33 yet, Uh I'm thinking something along the lines of Clark Otto, also known as Frank O'Dragon on Atari Age, and I'm thinking of addressing some more 7800 homebrew abandonware. But anyway, thank you very, very much for listening. I do appreciate that. It means the world to me. But most importantly, I'm asking you to please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. And going out on hopefully a positive note, The next time I talk to you, it's going to be spring. Happy March.